It was the dawn of the third age of podcasting, 30 years after the series had launched. The Babylon podcast was a dream given form. Its goal, to discuss the place where humans and aliens could work out their differences peacefully. It's a port of call, home away from home for established fans, newbies, John, Blaine, and guests. Humans and aliens wrapped in 2,500,000 tons of spinning metal, all alone in the night. It could be a dangerous place. Wait, what? But it's our last, best hope for peace. This is the story of the last of the Babylon stations. The year is 2024. The name of the podcast is... Babylon 5, 30 Years Later. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Babylon 5, 30 Years Later. This is the podcast by two gentlemen who enjoy science fiction covering every episode and installment of the Babylon 5 franchise 30 years after they are released. My name is John Wilson, and with me is my friend Blaine Dowler. Hello, Blaine. Hello, John. How are you doing? I'm all right. We are talking today about episode 6 of season 1, known as Mind War, which uh, is one I've been looking forward to getting to. So here we are. Ah, yes, this is the one with that notable guest star, Walter Koenig, who's obviously best known for his role as Sergeant Johnson in the season six premiere of Columbo. Yeah, I thought I recognized him from Columbo. I was like, I I know this guy's face. Who is this guy? He's short. I feel like he should be speaking with a bad Russian accent, but I don't know why. But yeah, he was from Columbo that one time, Walter Koenig, who is, of course, also Pavel Chekhov, Ensign, Navigator, Lieutenant, Chief of Security, and then Commander also on the USS Enterprise. Yes. Yeah, so it's not a coincidence that he, the episode of Columbo he guest starred in, starred William Shatner as the killer, and also not a coincidence that they had no scenes together. (laughs) Yeah. 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 I've heard that both Koenig and Takei have, have unpleasant memories of their time with Shatner. Yeah, there was actually a, a roast of Peter Falk where, you know, he was doing a fan Q&A and they asked him about the people that they had recurring. Because there were some people who played four or five different killers over the years on Columbo. And right. he said that, uh, yeah, generally when you see someone like that, they were just a delight to work with. So they wanted to work with them again and kept bringing them back. And uh, he was talking about Patrick McGowan and Jack Cassidy and all these guys that he just had a wonderful time with. And a fan said, well... Uh, William Shatner was was on the show more than once. Do you have anything to say about him? And he says, uh, yeah, William Shatner did do two episodes. Oh, and did I mention what an absolute joy it was to work with Leonard Nimoy? So, right. Apparently Shatner has done a lot of self-improvement work since the 70s when all this was happening. I'd like to hope so. I'd like to hope so. But Walter Koenig is our guest star today. He and... Felicity Waterman played two telepaths in this episode. And of course, Koenig is, you know, Star Trek up and down. And it only makes sense that Babylon 5, which along with Straczynski is probably run by several Star Trek fans, it makes sense to have him. But I did not recognize Felicity Waterman. I know she was on Die Hard 2. And it says that she was on Titanic. But I don't recognize her from Titanic, and I'm not even sure that that's the right Titanic. That's a 1996 Titanic. 
But that's a TV miniseries. That's why I don't know who that is. Different Titanic. Yeah, her biography, looking at it, she's been working steadily. Or at least she was up until about the year 2000. But a lot mm-hmm. of the roles, I mean, her most involved role seems to be Vanessa Hunt on Knott's Landing for 22 episodes in 1992. Mm-hmm. But it, a lot of times they seem to be looking for someone who is very pretty, and that's about it. And she is very pretty, but the other roles that she's getting are not super demanding beyond that. Yeah, I thought she did fine in this. The the flaws in her acting weren't any greater than the flaws in Koenig's performance. I mean, so I, you know, I don't know exactly what happened with her career there. But we also have William Allen Young, who was in District 9, which was a fantastic film. Did you see District 9? And not yet. It's one of those that's actually been, I, I picked it up the day it came out based on reputation and just haven't gotten to it because the amount of media worth consuming and the amount of time i have to watch it just don't th- those are not the same numbers no no they really aren't and especially like nerd genre media in the last 10 years there is so much more than can be consumed yeah as we're recording this the first season finale of strange new worlds has been released and i intended to watch it so i could talk to blaine about it but i didn't because there just wasn't time with work and other things that needed to be watched. So, um, yes, there's never enough time to get everything watched. Okay, well, I'll trust you'll get caught up by the time our listeners hear this one. Hopefully by 2024, <laughs> which, by the way, this is coming out on March 2nd, 2024, because March 2nd, 1994 is when Mind War was released. And the one other thing I wanted to mention on the ident card here is the character that Walter Koenig is playing. Is that a name familiar to you, Alfred Bester? Um, Yeah, it's one that became familiar to me as I was reading this, the the scripts and stuff the first time, because as far as Straczynski is concerned, the definitive science fiction novel in, in terms of telepaths is The Demolished Man, written by Alfred Bester. Right. The Demolished Man by Alfred Bester. It was published serially in 1953, I think, and then released as a combined volume in 1954, although I may be off by a year on that because I'm going by memory. But it is a pretty great book. I read it because it... Science fiction fans are probably familiar with the Hugo Awards that are given every year. There were several years where they were giving retro awards for years when there wasn't a Hugo Award given, and they were doing like anniversaries. So the award in 1954 was actually issued in, I want to say 2004, to the Demolished Man. And uh, I read that, and it handles telepathy, and it actually does a lot of the same kinds of themes with telepathy and how it, how it plays its role in the world that this episode of Babylon 5 in general does. So naming Walter Koenig after Alfred Bester was definitely a a nod to some works that he had read, mm-hmm. that Jay Straczynski had read. Uh, yeah, and in fact, the Babylon 5 character was only going to be known as Bester. Straczynski didn't want to give him a first name, but then he was given a first name in a tie-in novel down the road, and the author of that tie-in novel recognized the reference and named him Alfred to complete the reference. Okay. So Straczynski just kind of ran with it when it came out. 
that makes sense because yes he is only identified as bester on script and in the credits but then i saw the alfred was here in the internet movie database page and also on the uh, babylon 5 fandom page so i wasn't sure exactly how that came about but i was just going with it Mm -hmm. i recognize the name just by the last name bester i was like oh that's a reference yes if you read the demolished man you should read it in visual print medium not just on audio because he does stuff with the actual visual display of the text at times that is unusual not maybe essential to the reading of the story but definitely part of the presentation that's worth worth including but anyways shall we get to the um the episode uh yeah just a couple other details on that one this one was written by Jeremy Kostrzynski, directed by Bruce Seth Green, who had previously directed Born to the Purple. And even though this was the sixth of the hour-long episodes to hit the air, it was actually the tenth produced. Okay, so it was moved up in favor of others. Yeah, the network was quite happy with it. So that's also why Catherine Sakai appears in two consecutive episodes. They originally kind of plotted to space that out a little bit. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, because Catherine Sakai is in this. She is a prominent member of the B-plot of the episode, of course, played by Julia Nixon. And yeah, it is evident that she and Sinclair are continuing to enjoy their time together. The idea of having this show up several episodes later to sort of prolong that, or at least, you know, I don't know, let that relationship show up every now and then. I can see why they might have wanted to do that. Yeah. Well, maybe it's worth pointing out after we do the plot summary that you thought I was going to point out. Okay. Well, speaking of plot summaries, I have a plot summary to talk about. So, we open in space near Babylon 5, where three Furies are pursuing another ship. And that ship seems to explode, like some sort of shockwave comes out of it, but the ship doesn't actually explode. However, it does knock out the Furies, and then the ship continues on its course through the jump gate to Babylon 5. As we said, Commander Sinclair and Catherine Sakai, we see them enjoying a morning together. They talk about how they both have meetings to go to that are going to launch the uh, two main plot threads of the episode. So Sinclair heads off to the A plot and Catherine heads off to the B plot. Also in the B plot, at least at first, is Talia Winters, the station's resident telepath. Her services have been procured by a client from Universal Terraform. Remember, one of the things that telepaths do in this series is they liaise, basically, in business meetings to ensure that, uh, I was going to say that both parties are being honest, but they're usually procured by one party, and so really the onus is on the other party to make sure they're telling the truth. So in this case, um, the meeting is with Catherine. So as Catherine is talking to the representative from Universal Terraform, Tali is there to make sure she's telling the truth. And uh, the guy wants Catherine to survey the planet Sigma 957 for the uh, valuable mineral Quantium 40, which they have detected traces of from a distance. Catherine's on board with all this. Talia telepaths to confirm her sincerity. So now the only problem is that the planet is in disputed space and they need permission from the Narn Empire. And so Ambassador Jakar enters the chat and he denies permission. He says Catherine can't go. So she confronts him privately outside the meeting, and he says that the denial is for her own good because Sigma 957 is a mysterious and dangerous place. But Catherine leaves anyway. 
And when Jakar is alone, he makes a call to order some well-armed fighters to the same planet. Very sinister and foreboding, Jakar. Or is it? When Catherine arrives at Sigma 957, she finds nothing untoward and she begins scanning the planet from orbit for her survey. But then this massively huge something kind of looks like a flower, but not really. Is it a ship? Is it a life form? We don't know. But it appears to jump away under its own power, leaving in its wake a very massive impact on Catherine's ship, which is now almost entirely without power and in a decaying orbit. She can't send messages and she can't pilot and she's going to die in about, you know, two hours. But that's when the Narn ships appear that Jakar had ordered. But rather than make things worse, the captain of one ship says he was sent by Jakar to assist her. And he proceeds to tow her ship out of orbit and back to the station. When Catherine returns to Babylon 5, she confronts Jakar over what she saw at Sigma 957. And he says he knows of it, but not exactly what it is, except to say that it is as far beyond their understanding as humans are beyond the understanding of ants. So that's the B plot, and it is very cool. The A plot takes up more of the episode, but the basic structure is not too complicated. What we have are the arrival to the station of Alfred Bester and Ms. Kelsey. Or I guess I should just say Mr. Bester and Ms. Kelsey, because Bester is not given a first name officially in the episode. They are two representatives from the enforcement arm of the Psy Corps, commonly known as Psy Cops. And the visual similarity between Psy Corps and Psy Cops, I think, is uh, kind of like a pun or a play on words. Anyways, it looks cool on the page. Bester's and Kelsey's telepathic abilities are as apparent as their lack of manners as they go make their way through the station and find their way to a meeting with uh, Commander Sinclair and. Uh, Lieutenant Commander Ivanova, and they inform the officers of a threat arriving on their station, but they give frustratingly little information other than that a man named Jason Ironheart must be apprehended. Well, turns out Ironheart is the guy from the ship at the very beginning that appeared to explode but didn't, and he is on the station. Now, Talia Winters had known Ironheart. Uh, he was her mentor in the Corps. So she is called before the Psychops, who painfully probe her mind to determine that she has not recently seen the fugitive. They figured it was probably a logical place for Ironheart to go. And turns out it was a logical place for Ironheart to go because after Talia leaves the meeting, she's found by Jason Ironheart, who seems very gentle and kind for a dangerous fugitive. Talia gives him a place to hide and Ironheart tells her that he went through an experiment that enhanced his mental abilities, bringing out his telekinetic abilities, which are very rare. Telepathy is a minor or a minority trait, I guess, in humanity at this point, but telekinesis is exceedingly rare within the telepathic circles. And the experiment fine-tuned his telekinetic abilities to a phenomenal degree. He fears that the Psychor shouldn't be allowed to create such powerful telekinetics, because that would give them too much dangerous power, you know, such as the ability to anonymously assassinate leaders without detection. Ironheart even killed the man who created him because they was the only one who knew the process. So if, uh, if he, Ironheart, is captured by the Psychops, they can analyze him and examine him and figure out how to repeat it. And he wants that to be no. 
So he wants Talia to help him get away. Problem is, his powers are continuing to expand. And every time he levels up, there's this telekinetic shockwave around him that causes significant damage. And after he says this, there is a telekinetic shockwave around him that causes significant damage to the station. There is a, a, a large damaged area of the section, uh, station now that is surrounded by an energy curtain that only Talia herself is allowed through to see Ironheart. You see, they had been romantic back in the Psycorps and not just mentor-student. A duality that we might normally frown upon, but that frowning upon is not even hinted at in the episode. It's just part of their character history. So Sinclair is, of course, aware of the shockwave, and he confronts Bester and Kelsey about the nature of this threat to his station that they're supposed to be apprehending. But then Ironheart and Talia are able to find Sinclair. They convince him that the Psycor are the real threat, and they convince him of the need to help Ironheart get away. As the three head for a ship, they are confronted by the Psycops, and in the struggle, Ironheart mentally vaporizes Kelsey because she would otherwise shoot him. He knocks Bester unconscious, and he does manage to escape on a ship. Off the station, there is another shockwave that destroys the ship he's on, but Ironheart manages to achieve some kind of cosmic state. He appears to basically be a god now. He uh, speaks to Sinclair. And Talia through the uh, communication screen at the CNC, but he is outside being glowy and giant and CGI. He uh, mentally gives Talia some sort of gift in return for the love that she has shown him. And he departs into corners of space unknown, promising to return to see Sinclair in a million years. I don't know if Sinclair is going to make that date, but that's okay. Sinclair convinces Bester of the wisdom of glossing over all the details of Ironheart's escape and Talia's involvement before Bester leaves. And Talia, alone in her quarters, discovers that she is now able to move objects with her mind as well. And if you look at the expression on her face, this is an ability that doesn't exactly seem to please her. But there we go. That's the mind war. And uh, what are you thinking on this? Yeah, I'm thinking this was... Definitely an enjoyable episode. It's introducing some characters. And again, watching it in retrospect, there's so much set up here in what feels like an episodic season. Yeah, this is, uh, this is of course, the Psychor has been hinted at, but it's evident from the beginning that it's going to be a significant element. And uh, um, knowing some novel titles down the road, I, I was kind of on the lookout for anything having to do with the Psychor from the beginning of watching this. And being able to see that um, explored in this was pretty cool. Having Walter Koenig uh, guest star was also cool. And having him be the villain this time was a nice change. Yeah, I really, really enjoyed this. It might not be as philosophically profound as The Parliament of Dreams, but it's a very, very cool sci-fi adventure story. Mm -hmm. My first note is just that Catherine is still here. And as I've been watching um, Star Trek alongside this series, they they don't really have this level of inter-episode continuity over there. They don't bring in characters to last for a handful of episodes and then leave again. You're either a regular for the season or you're not. Uh, so this kind of a character intercontinuity just doesn't exist over there yet. Babylon 5 is doing it. Yeah, and Deuce 9 will eventually do it. 
but it will take time. Yeah, eventually, yeah. Yeah, it, w- it definitely was not part of the DNA from the start. And in fact, uh, Rick Berman was fighting against that from the start. And it only started happening when Iris Stephen Bear realized they weren't being watched very closely and he could just ignore the instructions and do it anyway. Yeah, once Berman goes over to Voyager and continues to be very episodic and non-continuity driven, D.S. goes, okay, let's start doing multi-part sagas. Yeah, uh, they were explicitly told not to, so they're, for the first time ever, there's a two-part episode in Star Trek in the third season of Deep Space Nine, which just isn't labeled part one and part two. It's titled like they're two completely <laughs> different episodes, so they did it and didn't hear anything from it, and they're like, okay, they're not watching, so here's what we're going to do now. Yes. And that's really the big difference, is having an episode that is explicitly labeled as part one and part two, that's still like an episodic storytelling. You are telling the the, the, the viewers, this will be continued in the next episode, and then it will be resolved. Whereas if you just have episodes happening in sequence with a plot going over multiple episodes, that's more what we call serial storytelling, which has really become the norm for a lot of TV ever since the early 2000s. Yeah, that is one thing that um, the main influences that they credit with changing that. On the one hand, there was the the three-part thing in the 90s. Premiering in 1993, we had Babylon 5, Deep Space Nine, and The X-Files, which were more serialized Mm -hmm. than their contemporaries. And then with the popularity of the Netflix streaming service in the early 2000s, now it became reasonable for the studios to assume that, yes, when people are watching our show, they are watching every episode in order, so we don't need as much exposition getting them caught up. We can do a little more serialization, because missing an episode is not the problem it used to be. Right. And I, I think that um, I remember watching, so Smallville seemed to bridge the gap, because Smallville starts out as extremely episodic storytelling. But by the end of the 10 years of its run, it's doing season-long arcs that are still more or less episodic, but you have a a driving plot. But, you know, in the early 2000s, like 2004, you have shows like Lost and uh, Heroes and Battlestar Galactica, which were hugely pioneering the idea of continuous storytelling from episode to episode with no real resolutions along the way except like you might expect in a novel you expect the you know things to have minor resolutions in the two-thirds of the waypoint but not to get completely resolved till the end of the book and things don't get resolved in those shows until the end of the show yeah it was a, a structure which we will see a lot more of in babylon 5 in coming seasons where you might tie off a subplot but you'll have four or five subplots going in an episode and you won't tie them all off at once not unless you are also starting new subplots at the same time. And really, the subplot element is what we're talking about here. Just to go back to the, the point of the tangent that started it off was that Catherine was brought in in last episode, and she's still here. But she's not a series regular, and she will, you know, I don't know exactly the nature of it. I just know that her character, her episode count is limited, and she does, you know, she leaves the show somehow but just saying that her presence here is to me is a subplot because it's she's not part of the main cast yeah and again to go back to what we said about her when she was introduced notice that her storyline in this episode had nothing to do with sinclair this was her story mm-hmm. yep which is yeah something jms very much wanted to do 
So fully, you know, making your, it is of course the, the classic trope that is, you know, overworn and overtired by this point to have usually a female, but the one member of a romantic partner just be the romantic partner and that's all they are. But she gets to be her own person. She gets to do her own thing. And although she does not specifically fulfill the requirements of the Bechdel test in this, giving her her own plot apart from any romantic connections, I think fulfills the same idea. Yeah. I'm just thinking about the Bechdel test. She didn't, yeah, she didn't really have a conversation with Talia because she wasn't the one who hired her. So Yeah, she shared a scene with Talia, but Talia was fulfilling a purpose for the other member of the conversation. Yeah, so it's, I mean, I guess if they, the simplest way that they could have taken this plot line and have her satisfy the Bechdel test is either if the, the person hiring her or the Narn captain that rescued her were female. And really, on the script level, there's no reason that either of those characters had to be male. True. True. One of the things that struck me about Walter Koenig's character whenever he first appears is this is the first time we had seen telepaths sending and not just reading. Mm -hmm. We had seen Talia pick up on people's thoughts. We had seen Talia respond to them. But we had not seen Talia send messages to other people's minds, which... When Bester and Kelsey first appear on the station, they don't speak. All of their interactions with, uh, like, you know, customs or whoever welcomes them on is all, verbally at least, it's all one-sided. They're sending telepathically and the person's responding verbally. Mm -hmm. In fact, Sinclair is like, get out of my head. And that's when Kate actually first speaks. Yeah, which is another trick in the writing. It's like writing half of a phone conversation. It gets really difficult to make the conversation sound natural when you only have one person giving all of the information for the conversation. Mm -hmm. But they did it well here, and partly because that, as you said, it is when they're just coming on board and going through customs. So it's not hard to imagine what they're saying and doing next. The blanks are fairly easy to fill in. Right. There's not a whole lot of like you're saying, one-sided conversations, a lot of times with a phone conversation, the person is basically repeating what the other person said. Like, I'm not going to make it there today. Oh, you're not going to make it here today? You only hear one side of the conversation, but you, it, it makes it sound very unnatural. And they succeed in making these sound natural. Mm -hmm. Kelsey and Koenig, I'm sorry, Kelsey and Bester are both rather sinister with like, a velvet exterior. They seem like they 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 can put on the nice face when they need to, but they're not nice people. And Kelsey, especially, whenever they're talking about how they're going to have to scan Talia, she seems to relish the fact that it's not going to be pleasant for Talia. And I found that disturbing. <laughs> yeah, that was I think meant to be a disturbing scene. And we've got Sinclair repeatedly saying that is enough, and they continue. So mm -hmm. they. They are really not recognizing his authority in this situation. Right. And they're just doing whatever they want, which is consistent with saying that, well, because they're the side cops and they're policing other size or other telepaths, they are offered a greater latitude in how they operate. Right. But uh, still, yeah. it's gross. Um, and I feel like, okay, so the nature of telepathy, telepathy is, of course, fictitious. So its rules follow whatever the rules of the particular world set out. With telepathy, there's the idea of communicating telepathically, but there's also the idea of seeing into somebody's mind things that are not actively being communicated, you know, scanning the files of a hard drive, so to speak. So I get the impression that in this world, 
they can't really tell if she has seen Ironheart without her communicating it to them unless they delve. And in this world, that delving is not pleasant. A lot of times telepaths just scan and the other person doesn't know what's going on. But this one, it's 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 a more involved process. Yeah, especially since they, they said they weren't checking her memories. They were checking for his mental fingerprints. So interacting with someone leaves a mark behind and that's what they were looking for. So mm-hmm. it was a very invasive process. So you could tell that Talia was, you know, it was very unpleasant. She was screaming when it was done. It was, Sinclair was, again, giving the Psychops a piece of his mind, while Ivanova passed Talia the glass of water. Right. In fact, just the uh, the unspoken acting by Andrea Thompson in that scene, in the aftermath of the scan, and then still continuing as she's walking out of the room. You could just see that this had left its toll on her. She's having to recover. And it, I, it was pretty effective. What else? There is a conversation that I glossed over in the recap. It wasn't really recappy, but it's definitely worth discussing. There's a conversation between Jakar and Catherine before Catherine leaves, where he emphasizes that no one here on the station is exactly what they appear. And he even lists out some specific characters, all from the main cast. And actually... Side note, it's worth pointing out that a large portion of the main cast doesn't appear in this episode. There's no Delenn, there's no Londo, their assistants aren't here, Jakar's assistant's not here. It's a pretty limited cast as far as that goes. But anyways, it almost is like he wants to make sure, Straczynski wants to make sure that if you are not paying attention, you really should pay attention. People are layered in this series. Yeah, and we're seeing some of that with Jakar in this episode, where up to this point, he when we've seen him, he has largely been the villain, particularly mm-hmm. uh, the villain in opposition to Centauri intentions and Centauri goals. But this time, no, he sends people to rescue Catherine because he knows she's going to need that rescue, and she is not listening to him. Yeah, we've talked in previous episodes about how he's, like, not really being very antagonistic. And in this one, he's downright helpful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so he, again, there seems to be more to Jakar than it seems. Um, and just on your point about how a lot of the others weren't here, I have been reading ahead in the scripts and the production notes. And one of the comments made by Straczynski in the commentary for the season two premiere, that's the script I'm going to read next, is that with season two, they were able to up the contracts for a lot of the series regulars from eight appearances per season to 11 to 13, depending on the character. Okay. So I think it, I believe that uh, Michael O'Hare as Sinclair, Jerry Doyle as Garibaldi and Claudia Christian as Ivanova were the only three that appear in 22 out of 22. And the rest in this season, there's eight, or they've got eight appearances each which involves some shuffling that we'll get to when we talk about certain scripts, particularly those written by DC Fontana with characters that are and are not available. So 8 to 13 feels like a pretty small number when you're talking about 22 hours. Yeah, and a lot of that was because science fiction is expensive and you pay actors per their appearances. You kind of make sure that there there's not a lot there. I mean, there. There's some of that, for example, there's uh, one episode of Deep Space Nine where uh, Avery Brooks is one of the 
the characters who's there for every episode. There's one episode where he doesn't even have a line. He's working in his office when Nog and Jake crawl through the ductwork to come out at him, and he just gives them a look, and then they go back into the ductwork and pull the screen grating close behind them. <laughs> so sometimes they're... It's a little forced. Like there's, there's episodes of Voyager where Chicote just says "shields up" and that's his entire role. So rather than force characters right. to be in there, on the one hand, it does give you the opportunity to spend more time on these plots because if everyone had to be in every episode, well, then they would have had to find things for Londo and Delenn and Natoth and Veer and Lanier and Kosh all to do this week. And when you have this many members of the cast, that's a lot for them to do when they're, you know, it, it's different when you've got the Star Trek show. I know we keep saying we're going to try not to compare, but it's tough when really there's only the two space station shows on the air. Well, in this, in this we're not really comparing. It's, a, it's not really a Babylon 5 versus DS9. This is just different ways of telling stories with the cast. So, yeah. Yeah. When most of your recurring cast are part, it's almost like a workplace setting. Right. It's easy to assign them tasks that work to the same goal. Here, it kind of is a workplace setting, but they're not all working for the same employer. Right. Right. I was, I was thinking similarly, like on, on a starship or on a space station, you can just have operator people in the background, especially on a starship. They're just on the bridge being present. They don't actually have to be involved in the storyline. But this one... Most of our cast are not station personnel, so to speak. They they have jobs and they're working and they're living on the station, but they're not part of the operation structure. Yeah, you don't have to, you know, there's you don't have your, your chief engineer and your chief of security so much, right? You've got operations. I mean again to do a Star Trek comparison, if this were Star Trek the Next Generation, it would be like Picard Riker and War for Yar were the only three recurring characters that were there every episode. Right. And all the other major characters all the other major characters aren't piloting the ship. They're, you know, working in the various departments. Like your major character is the head of environmental sciences and she's down there doing environmental science things. Or mm -hmm. the ambassador from Planet Vulcan is a mainstay on the ship for whatever reason. So he's there present, you know. And like you have all these characters who don't run the ship they're just on the ship being people doing their jobs <laughs> mm -hmm. so yeah very different ways of telling stories but this this is effective and like you said it does allow them to limit the use of characters except for when the use of that character is meaningful to either the character or the story at large or both so yeah uh, i think it ends up giving more effectiveness to when we do see people mm -hmm. so this is a question and the answer, if it's yes, might need to be limited to the back of the episode. But just to bring it up here, they're talking about an arms race whenever Talia and Jason are talking about his telepathic powers and how they're being enhanced and how the Psychor are looking at enhancing telepaths. They basically talk about like an arms race between the uh, Psychor and, quote, the enemy. So is he speaking generically? Or is there a particular enemy that he is talking about there? Is it capital E enemy or just uh, generic? From his perspective, I believe it's generic. Okay. They can use that later and we can bring it up later, but he's, he's thinking just generic. Yeah, I mean, we saw elements of that in The Gathering 
where Jakar was trying to negotiate with Leda Alexander because the Narans are the one major species that don't have a telepath. So he was gotcha. trying to bring her her genetics into the Narn regime through some form of union that was open to negotiation. So yeah, that is continuing that thread, which is, I think, pretty natural when you've okay. got... Once telepaths exist, how are they going to be used? Well, there are pretty clear military applications of telepaths, especially when they're talking about it there. So Definitely. And especially when you have people as <clears throat> apparently amoral as Bester and Kelsey. Mm -hmm. Also in that conversation with Jason and Talia, he talks about the, the, the rarity of telekinetics and the phrasing he uses that one in every thousand humans is a telepath. And one in every 10,000 telepaths is a telekinetic, and half of those are insane, driven insane by their own abilities. Coincidentally, as I watched this episode, I had just read Asimov's Foundation and Empire, and he uses almost exactly that same phrasing to describe the rarity of something in his particular story, which... Not that it's that super unusual a way to describe rarity, but I also think it's probably likely that Straczynski has read the Foundation Trilogy by Asimov. So I'm wondering if that was in his mind when he pulled this out, either consciously or unconsciously. Yeah, probably unconsciously. He makes some comments in uh, the Usenet conversations I've been reading about one specific camera angle in the season finale, uh, where someone says, was a de deliberate homage to this? And he says he doesn't like to do a deliberate homage in most cases because he finds it distracting. And it, it you know, mm -hmm. he wants to tell his own story and not just Frankenstein together other people's stories. Probably that same idea plays into why he didn't want to include Bester's first name as Alfred. Yeah, it's just, at this point it's just a name, but it, and that doesn't affect the phrasing or the specific voice of the show. So yeah, it's any, I would say any influence from foundation was on a subconscious level gotcha well still it's something worth uh worth having influence you and like it's, it's he's, he'd probably read it i mean if you're a sci-fi writer and you haven't read the classics then you're not probably and if you read his his autobiography and some of the comments he he has in these he talks about what he thought was the weirdest crime wave of all time because they grew up very poor but he loved to read Mm-hmm. But he was also very ethical, and the way they were moving around, he couldn't always get a library card. So his crime wave as a child, he would go to like a convenience store, steal the book he wanted to read, read it extremely carefully so it stayed in absolutely pristine condition, and then go back to that same store and put it back when he was done with it. <laughs> And for some reason, he was always more nervous trying to return it than when he was trying to take it in the first place. <laughs> well, yes, I do love that we are getting so much menace behind the Psycor so early in the series. We established early on that there are rules governing telepaths. We've lived with those rules. It was one of the first things that was said whenever the not Talia character was brought on. Uh, now we find that those who make the rules also feel completely at liberty to violate them every which way from Sunday. Uh, and they're using that to gain power. And as Ivanova points out, there's no one watching the Watchmen in this show. Yeah, it's almost like sometimes when you put someone in a position of authority, they abuse it. What? 
Yeah, but uh, that's okay. I'm, I'm sure Kelsey and Bester here are just a few bad apples. Yeah, yeah. My last beat on this that's not something specific for the giving form segment is that yay telekinetic Talia at the end. That was pretty cool. Yeah, that's that's definitely going to be a thing. Yeah, yeah, but it's not specifically a thing, but it's it's something here that's very cool. Uh, I liked it. They actually, you know, specifically mentioned earlier in the episode that she didn't have telekinetic abilities. She tried to access them when she was in the Psycor training, and she mentioned the coin that she actually moves at the end. But you don't have to go into detail here. Was I reading her face right? Is she, uh, at best, mixed feelings on the fact that she can do this now? Yeah, I think mixed feelings would be fair, especially given what she saw them doing to Jason Ironheart. And now she can do a piece Mm -hmm. of that, too. Now she can do that, too. All right. So that was our discussion segment, what we call the League in Session. Do you have any other thoughts before we go to the last best hope? No, I think you've... that. We've covered what we needed to there. We kind of had this format where I I bring up thoughts and you respond to them. I'm not always certain that you've, you know, given all of your own thoughts as well. So I just, <laughs> I just want to make sure. Yeah, so what I'm finding I'm, I'm actually in turning out to be quite reserved in the league in session. That, that will probably change as the series evolves because now so mm-hmm. much of the thoughts running through my head cannot be expressed without spoilers. <laughs> so I'm going to have something like, for giving form. Yep, to, that was pretty yeah. cool. <laughs> I'm going to have a giving form to the dream comments a lot early on. And then as we get to the tail end of the series, as things are starting to wrap up, then I'll have a lot more League and Session stuff where I could say, yeah, remember when I told you to pay attention to that four years ago? Now is why. So our last best hope is where we talk about some standout character or character moment or just any, you know, anything about the episode that we want to give a special award to. And for me, I thought this scene was written better than it was executed. It was the one, when I mentioned earlier, flaws in Koenig's performance, this was the one thing that came to mind, but I still really liked the moment. There's a moment when Garibaldi and Sinclair are talking and Garibaldi leaves as Bester enters. And Bester has already made his nastiness of his personality evident. And Garibaldi says nothing. But Bester turns around to him and says, anatomically impossible, Mr. Garibaldi, but you're welcome to try. And basically is responding to Garibaldi's unspoken hostility toward this. And the fact that he just says anatomically impossible, we know the kind of thought or the kind of message that Garibaldi would have expressed, probably not okay to express on 5 o'clock TV or whenever this aired. But, but yeah, I really liked that moment. It was, and also the thing I liked about it is that he's sort of the um, smiling without smiling expression on his face toward Garibaldi. But then after Garibaldi leaves, it just disappears from Koenig's face. He's all business and his pretense at politeness is gone. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was a, a very good moment. What about you? What was your last best hope for the episode? It's actually something I hadn't noticed about the way Kaney decided to portray Bester until much later the first time. But in his own mental backstory, 
Koenig has been injured, or Bester has been injured. And if you watch this episode and future appearances of Bester, I'm you know, giving a little bit away saying this is not the last time we're going to see him. His left hand is always clenched in a fist at all times. Oh. It's just a subtle little thing that, you know, I notice more down the road, but here it just, it's something he's doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was good. And another moment that, that stood out both times, we have already seen that Claudia Christian or Susan Ivanova has issues with the psychor and everything they represent. And then witnessing mm-hmm. them scanning Talia seems to have built enough compassion that Ivanova was the one that hands her the water, which I thought was a nice moment. I actually had not remembered that connection. That's a good call. Yeah. Yeah. It's a nice moment. And that's also something that belongs in the giving form to the dream segment, because that is, okay. it, it signifies a potential change in the nature of their relationship to be a little less adversarial. So with Koenig and the, and the, the clutched hand. Now I don't know if that injury is going to become a story point later and we don't have to know that now, but for those who've never studied, you know, some of the mechanics of acting, one of the things that characters will do is they only know so much. I'm sorry. One of the things that actors will do, they only know so much about their character from the script. And so they will often come up with their own backstory for the character just to help inform their performance. And this backstory may or may not have anything to do with what actually gets revealed, but for the character later, assuming that anything does. So the idea that Bester has had some sort of injury and that informs Chekhov's performance in some way, that's, or <laughs> informs Koenig's performance in some way, <laughs> Chekhov's performance. That's, uh, that's not too uncommon for actors to do in any, in any acting context. Yeah, and just to expand on that and take a chance to compare it, to a sci-fi show that's not Star Trek. If you go back to the first season of The X-Files, mm-hmm. David Duchovny right. played Mulder and Jerry Hardin played an informant Deep Throat. And it, initially it's not clear why Deep Throat is coming to Mulder and giving him this information and helping him out. We don't know anything about his motives. So Hardin and Duchovny were talking about it and how they're going to play it and decided that in their backstory, the person who raised Mulder was not actually his father, and Deep Throat was. Given the context of what you were saying, when you mentioned those two characters, that's exactly where I leapt in my mind. Oh, father-son backstory? <laughs> yeah, which is a little bit amusing, if you because if you've seen more of The X-Files than just that first season, you know that the man who raised Fox, Mulder, was not his biological father. So it actually does leave room for that invented backstory to exist. Uh, well, we know we find that out when we find out who his biological father actually is. Uh, okay. And it's okay. not Deep Throat. I don't know how familiar people are with the X-Files. I have not seen past, yeah, season three, the beginning of season four, I think is where I have seen. Which season opens with, um, with Scully having been abducted? Oh, uh, her abduction is during season two to cover her pregnancy. Oh, maybe I haven't seen as far as I thought. Okay, I've seen season two. I don't know if I've seen, I thought I'd seen season three. Maybe I have, but I thought I stopped shortly after she returns from that abduction. But, um, but anyways, yeah, that's, uh, that's the last best hope. So now giving form to the dream. Now this is where if you haven't seen the series, 
We're not necessarily spoiling what's going to happen. We're just trying to draw attention to things in this episode that are somehow, some way we don't know, significant for later. Now I say we don't know because I don't know. Of course, Blaine knows everything. So the one thing that I brought in, besides general world building stuff like the Psychor, and there are two characters brought into this episode that show up again later. The one thing that I thought might be significant is the Sigma 957 visitation. Was that just cool storytelling and, you know, to show the wonders of the universe? Or was there something going on there that we're going to need to remember later? Yeah, we're going to want to put a pin in that. Okay. Yeah, there, there's a lot of Chekhov's guns in this episode. <laughs> a lot of Bester's guns. <laughs> So yes, the the existence of those races that Jacquard describes as being billions of years older than any of the rest, and that they are still out there in some places, that will be a thing in the future. Uh, we also have the possibility, Jason, they said that Jason was becoming paranoid, but he was saying that Psychor is trying to control everything from behind the scenes and take charge. That is a conversation worth noting because we will find out whether he was right or wrong in that. This episode leaves it open. Right. Um, I already mentioned that we have that shift in the relationship between Ivanova and Talia to be slightly less adversarial. Now that Ivanova has seen that Talia is a victim and Talia is understanding that she has been victimized this time. Where she was defending the Psychor in the past. Mm. And the other thing that may be worth pointing out is that, well, Bester, you know, the way he leaves, he's backed into a corner. So it's not the resolution he wanted. And he is forced to falsify right. his report by Sinclair and Garibaldi. Yeah, there's a nice line where Sinclair says, this is the way things happened. And he says, that's a lie. And he's like, yes, what's your point? <laughs> because... The whole conversation is about modulating the truth in order to cover up people who should not be victims in all of this. If Bester had not been a sinister manipulator and exploiter in this episode, then Talia and Jason would not have had the problems that they had. And so Sinclair is covering the best interests of his station personnel. Yep. And he does it with the leverage of saying, and these are all the rules that you broke that put our lives in jeopardy. I'll keep my mouth shut about those. If you write your report this right. way. Right. So it works out for now, but evidently that might come back up again later. So that's good to know. All right. Anything else? Again, we've seen a new side of Jakar, who mentions... Jakar. Yeah, specifically when he says that people are not as they seem. The people that, or the characters that he specifically names are Londa Malari, Delenn, Sinclair and himself. And those are all the characters that we have specifically been given hints about as having more going on. I think maybe less so with Londo. I think the hints about Londo have been more subtle, at least. Sinclair and Deled have been very explicitly demonstrated as having stuff going on that we don't fully understand yet. I'm beginning to think more of Jakar as less the antagonist and more like the uncle who doesn't get along with the family. But like, he's not a bad guy. He's a bad guy. He's not a bad guy, you know? Yeah, like Zangief. I don't know Zangia, but I'll go with it. <laughs> well, yeah, that's actually the, the line he had in Wreck-It Ralph, right? 
Oh, yeah. I know the line from Wreck-It Ralph. Actually, I thought it was from the Lego movie. But um, but yeah, I forgot the character who said it. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I guess that basically wraps up our conversation about the episode. Is there anything else for we should talk about contact info? No, I think that's about it for this week. So we could let people know that uh, next week we will be discussing the War Prayer. And yes, they are one week apart. Our first big break is after the eighth episode that was aired. So yeah, we are two more episodes for the next two weeks, but then there will be a break. And we'll talk more about what's going to happen during that break when we get to the sky full of stars. Yes. Um, Yeah. So join us next week for the War Prayer, which is another character-centric episode for one of our regular cast. And how can they get in touch with us? Yeah, we would love to hear from you guys. We will read feedback on the air. Some of it immediately after being sent. Some of it later, because we are, as we've said repeatedly, we are trying to keep this podcast first-time viewer friendly. And a big part of that is that John is a first-time viewer. So when the email comes in, I will plan to read it first and sort it in terms of whether it only discusses what we've discussed so far. So please do that. And actually think about that. If people who are listening who are not first-time viewers notice that I miss something when we're giving form to the dream, again, we don't want to say why something is important, just that it is important. Please email it in and say, oh yeah, you missed this bit. That will also come back down the road. Because I know John said I know everything. I have seen everything, but some of it not recently. So some of the details have escaped me. If I miss them, please let us know. So you can send that email to Babylon5 30 years later at gmail.com. You can use numbers or letters for the five and the 30 in there. You can also leave comments on either of the show's websites. The uh, website, the uh, show is hosted at my site, johnreadscomics.com. So if you find the episode posting there, you can leave a comment. That is John with no H. And that site also has links to all of my various podcasting endeavors. Since we are recording this so far in advance, I don't know what those endeavors are, although at this point there should be a Superman read-through podcast going, but I don't know. But speaking of websites that have podcasts... Uh, Yes, everything that I'm involved in gets posted at Bureau42.com. So you can also leave comments there. And if you leave us a review on your favorite podcatcher, we will be definitely indebted to you and love you forever and have your children. Well, maybe not that last part. I'm getting old and it's hard now to have children. But um, you can leave uh, reviews at Apple Podcasts, which we check regularly. If you leave reviews anywhere else and you would like us to read and acknowledge them on the show, just please drop us a line through one of the other means to let us know that it's there. And we'll be happy to read your either kind or scathing review on whatever podcaster you prefer. And then the other major way to get in touch with us would be comments where these episodes are posted on YouTube because we do have a YouTube channel. And there I plan to go a little bit nuts with playlists so you can focus on just season one, just season two, just what's broadcast, include our bonus episodes, not include our bonus episodes, and just run through it that way. Um, The visual there will just be a, a title card with an audio visualizer, but all of the content will be on YouTube as well. All right. So that does wrap up our discussion of Mind War. As Blaine said earlier, next week we're talking about The War Prayer, Episode 7, which aired on March 9th, 1994. And so we will be here 30 years later on March 9th, 2024 to discuss it. 
as you have noticed, as of this episode, the date of release for our podcast has shifted because 2024 was a leap year. Happy leap year. And 1994 was not. So although the uh, shows were coming out on Wednesdays in 1994, we are no longer a Friday podcast. We are now a Saturday podcast for the next many months. All right. So we're going to play a podcast. Um, well, we're going to play a podcast. We're going to play a promo as we exit here uh, through the Zocalo. And um, Blaine, you're the editor, so I don't know exactly what podcast we're going to play here. Do you have a plan or do you want to let the listeners be surprised? Uh, let's let them be surprised, because for once, I actually don't have a plan. I, I think our All right. planning spreadsheet is going to have a column added so that we can have that plan. <laughs> or, you know, you could just decide it in the, on the fly. We can always let them be surprised. Either way is fine for me, at least. But of course, you're, uh, you're the producer. So however you want to run it. And um, until next time, everyone, thank you very much for listening to Babylon 5 30 years later. We will see you next week. Good eating to you. We were not supposed to leave. Four million years ago, two armies were stranded on a world not their own. Waking in the modern day, their ages-old alien conflict revives on the planet Earth. Scouring this new world for resources and safeguarding the native life from their war, their one goal remains. We have to go back. The stories of these Autobots, Decepticons, and humans were published in the United Kingdom in a weekly comic book and broadcast as an animated series. And now there will be a podcast exploring these chronicles in their entirety. We have to go back to Cybertron. Return to Cybertron, a Transformers UK podcast, coming October 31st, 